All right. I fixed this thing. When I put this on, Bebette, Mike was like way back here, but I fixed it. All right, guys, you have your Bibles. Grab them. We're continuing our series, the book of John. Yeah, keep you awake up there. Don't be texting. Don't be texting and cameraing. That's not a thing. I just made that up. All right, guys, if you have your Bibles, grab John chapter 4. So we're continuing. I'm going to read this together. The most important thing we do this morning is not listen to some bozo up here talk, but to read this book. Because as we read this book, we hear the very words of God. Amen. Amen. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. The words of our God, written by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Say this. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And He himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Many of you have probably uh, seen the show Pawn Stars, Um, and it's always really interesting, kind of fun show, and, uh, you know, someone always uh, brings stuff in, and, you know, they always want, like, a lot of money for it, and usually they're like, uh, we can't do that, but we can do this, and they find a place, and they sell off whatever they need to sell. And, and a lot of times people will come in on the show and they'll come in and they'll have some precious fairy, uh, family heirloom, you know, or you know, something that's been passed down to them and they're like, you know, I don't want to really get rid of this because it was my great-great-grandfather's and, uh, but, but I've got to because I need the money. And, and, and they'll give this whole story about this thing that they have, whether it be a guitar or a gun or a knife or a, a painting or, or, or a car or whatever it is. And, and uh, they'll say, you know, here's a story, Here, here's what this is. And, you know, it's worth $10,000 yada, yada, and, and, and then the guy behind the counter will go, okay, you know, I don't really know much about this, this thing, so I need to call in an expert, and, and, and sometimes they'll bring the expert in, and, and the expert will look at it, and he'll kind of do this test and look over it, and, and sometimes what happens is the guy has to come back, the, the main guy comes back to the guy wanting to sell the thing, and he has to go to him and say, hey man, we've had our experts look at this thing, and I, don't want, I hate to be the guy to tell you this, uh, but it's a fake. It's not worth anything. It's a replica. It's a phony. It's not real. It's not 
genuine. It's not authentic. I can give you 50 bucks for it. And they'll, you know, sometimes they'll just be sad to go home. They'll argue. They'll say, no, it is real. My granddaddy told me. But they find out that it's a counterfeit. This morning, we want to answer the question, what does belief in Jesus look like? What does authentic faith in Jesus look like? And not counterfeit faith. You see, there are a lot of people who claim that they would believe in Jesus, that they have faith in Jesus, but their faith might present itself and look a lot different than many of us who sit here this morning. See, sometimes the difference between authentic faith and a counterfeit faith is so close that it may be hard to tell the difference between the two. We know from the Bible that people can have the appearance of faith. It looks like they have faith, right? Uh, But yet to find out at the end that they are not genuine, authentic. It's why Jesus would say, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not uh, uh, do mighty works in your name? He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's why Billy Graham, who, the, you know, the greatest American evangelist that there ever was, had a man with him named Charles Templeton who traveled around and spoke with him and worked with him, worked alongside of him for years until one day Charles decided he didn't believe anymore. He didn't think Jesus was real anymore. He didn't think, he thought science trumped God. So Charles became an atheist, left Billy Graham, left the Crusades, and never returned to the faith, and he died an unbeliever. That's why Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says, you know, the gospel goes, and seed goes out, and some fell on the rocky soil, and it grew up real quick, right? But the sun scorched it out, and some seed fell uh, into the, to the thorny soil, and it grew up, but the, the thorns choked it out, and then some seeds fell on the good soil, and it sprouted and bore much fruit. You see, there is authentic faith, and there is counterfeit faith. There is real, genuine, saving, life-changing, life-transforming faith, and there is cheap, knockoff, replica, phony, counterfeit faith that will not save. So this morning, as we come to this text written by the disciple John, John is intending for us to do something as we read this passage. He wants us to compare and contrast several different events that have been leading up to this moment. He makes that really clear in the text as we're going to see, and he wants us to be able to tell the difference between authentic faith and counterfeit. So there are three events we'll look at that culminate in this that we just read. We want to look at each of these events, see how they respond to Jesus, and figure out if we can see which ones are authentic and which ones are counterfeit. So we start with where Jesus has been for the past two days. Uh, What we talked about last week, remember last week we talked about the the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, and and we learned that Samaritans, did the Jews love them? They hated them. The, The Jews hated these Samaritans, but yet Jesus comes and he meets this sinful, broken woman. He offers her living water and it changes her life and she goes and shares with all the people in her town. It changes their life. And what do the Samaritans say? But now that we know that Jesus is the savior of the world. 
And see, Jesus in Samaria, there's like this mini revival breaking out. People are coming. They're wanting to hear from Jesus. They're wanting to talk to Jesus. They're believing. There's like this revival breaking out in the whole region. People are coming to Jesus and believing. And it all starts out, starts with this outcast woman who shared her testimony. Just, this is, this is going to be free, all right? Let's just side note. Look what God did from just one woman sharing her story. Not, not talking about all the theological nuances and apologetics of why Jesus exists and who he is and why you should believe. Just here is what this man did for me. And he cha- changed the whole, whole community. Just, just think about that. Just think about that. Okay. Back, meanwhile, back at the ranch. And so the Samaritans believe they're coming to Jesus, they're being transformed. Look at verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. See, these these Samaritans who are despised and hated by the Jews meet Jesus, believe in him, believe he's the savior of the world, and they get it. Like they understand who he is. They understand this guy's the Messiah. He's the one who's come to save us. They understand, whereas so many other people throughout the Bible look at Jesus and they miss him. They misunderstand who he is. They, they don't get it. They don't connect the dots. They, they see him. They see what he's saying. They see what he's doing, and they just totally miss it. But the Samaritans don't. The Samaritans they get it. They're like, yeah, we're outcasts. We know what it's like to be hated. We know what it's like to not be accepted in. And this man has come to us, and we know he's a savior of the world. So they open their hearts and they believe. Now, what did Jesus do to convince these people that he was a savior of the world? That's, that's one of the important questions we're going to ask today. What did Jesus do to convince these people that he was who he said he was? The text is very clear, and it's important we catch this. It's so simple but so profound. They believed, verse 41, they believed because of his word. It's no longer, they said, it's no longer because this woman told us, but we have heard for ourselves and believed. You see, the word of God so pierced their hearts that their hearts burned within them, and they believed. They believed his word. It was the words of Jesus that caused them to believe. And it's not exactly what Paul would say later in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And it's through the hearing of the gospel that people believe. It is, it's the reason why you could spend 10 years at your work in the, the cubicle uh, next to this unbeliever and you could live a perfect, moral, good, upstanding life in front of this person for 10 years and they never get converted, never believe on Christ, never be saved, never make a difference. But you could have one conversation and tell them about Jesus and how he's changed your life and they could be saved, transformed. The Samaritans heard the testimony of a woman, and then they heard the words of Jesus, and they believed his word. Now let's look at the second one, the Jews. So Jesus spends two days with these Samaritans. He's teaching them. He's telling them all about himself. And then the text tells us that he heads down to Galilee. And Galilee, you need to understand, is Jesus' kind of hometown. It's his home place. 
It's the place that he did his first miracle in chapter 2 that we saw where he turned the water into wine. So he's been there. People know who he is. Uh, people, people who knew him from growing up, they understand who Jesus is. So how do they respond to him? you got to pay special attention to the text here because if we read it too fast, we're going to miss something really, really important. So we got to zoom in here for a second. It says that he departed for Galilee. Okay, so we know he's, he's leaving Samaria. He's headed back home. He's got a homecoming thing going on. But you might see the next line in your Bible, it's be interesting, in your Bible, you might see that after it says he went to Galilee, you might see parentheses. Like this, right? Those are parentheses, right? Okay. You might see those in your Bible, and if that's there, ignore it. Because, I don't know if you know this, but in Greek there are no parentheses. If you have an original Bible, there's actually no periods, no commas, there's nothing, none of that stuff. And so it's a little misleading when you read this and you see this parentheses, it throws it off a little bit. So John says, he departed for Galilee for, parentheses, ignore the parentheses, the word for is a setup word. It means he's getting ready to tell us why he's going to Galilee. Now, this, is, this is fascinating. It's really interesting. Why he's going to Galilee. So he, he departed for Galilee for Jesus himself testified that. Now here's what we expect to hear. He departed for Galilee for Jesus himself testified that uh, they needed to hear the gospel that they needed him, that he wanted to go reach the poor, that, something like that. But that's not what we read. He departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. What? He's saying, I'm going to Galilee because these people will not honor me. I'm going to go back to Galilee, I'm going to go home because I'm a prophet and they're not going to honor me. I'm leaving, now get this, I'm leaving the place where revival is breaking out. I'm leaving the place where everybody's getting it, coming and believing and, and loving the gospel to go to a place where they're not going to honor me and where they're going to not believe, where they're not going to listen to me. Jesus is going back to the people who don't understand him. The Samaritans got him, they understood, they, they figured it out, they saw who he was, and he's going to go to a people who don't understand who he is. And this isn't the first time John's pointed this out. Remember in, in chapter one, he says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. And maybe we say, okay, okay, we get it. Okay, Jesus is going back to Galilee because they don't honor him and the Samaritans get it. So we, now he needs to go to Galilee so that they understand who he is. Okay, that would make sense because Jesus really wants to try and try to, to beat it through their thick skulls that, he, that they would see him and believe. This is where we got to slow down and really read the text to understand something. Because literally, here's what the next line says. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, if you're, if you're reading that, it should catch you off guard. It should jar you a little bit because 44 says he departed to Galilee because a prophet has no honor in his hometown. But yet when he gets there, they welcome him. So a prophet has no, I'm, I'm going to go here because I'm not going to be honored, and yet he gets there and they welcome him. So something isn't making sense. It's contradictory. What is going on here? They're not going to honor me, and so i got to go, but yet he gets there and they welcome him. So are they going to not honor him or are they going to welcome him? Which is it? When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now let's finish the verse. Having seen, so they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. 
they too had gone to the feast. You see, this welcoming party for Jesus is not what it looks like on the surface. You see, there is a way, listen to this, there is a way of receiving Jesus that still has no true honor for who he really is. You see, you can be excited about Jesus. You can be excited about his return, but really only be excited for what he's come to do. You see, these people were at the wedding feast in chapter two when, John, when Jesus turned the water into, thank you, just make sure y'all are awake. I noticed no one said grape juice, that's good. So they, they, these people were at the, at the, they were at the, 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 the wedding, they saw Jesus take all this water, turn into wine, and so now they're welcoming him as he's coming home and really, the, 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 what John is getting at is he's saying that they're welcoming him, and, they're, and the question on their mind, the question on their lips is, oh, I wonder what he'll do next. Oh, I wonder what else he can do. He turned the water into wine. Oh, what else can he do? He turned water into wine, but what else? Jesus told us this. He says at the end of chapter 2, he says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, now listen, he turned the water into wine, and here's what he said. Many believed, they believed, they, they, they saw him turn water into wine, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. They saw him turn water into wine, and they believed when they saw those signs. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, it says that they believed. They saw him, they saw the sign, and they believed in him, right? So that's good. We should celebrate that they believed, right? But Jesus says he didn't trust them because he knew it was inside their hearts because they only believed in signs. You see, they knew, they, they, they didn't believe in who he was, but in what he could do. They weren't so interested in who he was, they were interested in what he was able to do and to do for them. Jesus knew their belief was not in him, but in his power. You see, you can believe without believing. What in the world does that mean? But there is a way of believing in which you actually don't believe. You see, they believed, but it was really all about this excitement to see these miracles and not what the miracles pointed to. They weren't interested that the miracles said this man is the savior of the world. They were interested, hey, could you do that turning water into wine thing again? That was pretty cool. Also, while you're at it, do you think you could like turn these rocks into gold? That'd be really cool too. You see, they were caught, so caught up in the, in the signs and the wonders and the power and the, and the mystery that they missed the greatest part about Jesus. They were so interested in what he could do that they missed who he was. That he was God in the flesh, that he was the Messiah, the Savior, that he was literally the king they've been waiting for for thousands of years. See, they missed Jesus because they were more interested that a man from their hometown, a man they knew, that was Joseph's boy, had grown up to be a rabbi who had strange power from God. And so they believed. 
but it was not an authentic faith. It was counterfeit because they only believed in the signs and not whom they pointed to. So here's the question. What is it that can keep us from seeing Jesus for who he truly is? What would cause us to be excited like they were about Jesus, to welcome him, to be excited about what he was doing and yet actually miss what was really going on? What would cause us like them to have this counterfeit faith? Two things that I think we see when, 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 Je- when you live in the hometown of Jesus, these things happen. One, the pride of attachment. The pride of attachment. See, right now, these people are all about them some Jesus, right? They got the t-shirt on. They're, they're, they're all for it. They're throwing them a welcome party. They want them here. Because they can say, did you know that Jesus just grew up down the road from me? Yeah, I know his daddy. Yeah, me and his daddy went to high school together. Oh, yeah, I know his uncle. I know his uncle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah my boys played with his brothers. Yeah, yeah, I know Jesus. He just grew up down the road there. Yeah, he's coming. I, did y'all know I knew him? Yeah, I was at that wedding. You know the wedding where he turned the water into wine? Yeah, I was there. It was really cool. Were you there? Oh, you, were, you really missed it, man. You see, there is a pride I don't know why all those people in Galilee talk like their country. I don't really get that, but, but they must. You see, there is this pride that they feel that Jesus is from their hometown, that they know him, that they, they want him to, to come and continue to do these miracles. They are, they're welcoming him. Jesus, come do some more. Because the more he does, the more miracles he performs, the more it feeds their own egos. So they honor him, not because they believe that he's the Savior, but because it makes them feel good and it feeds their pride. And we know this too well. I mean, you've been in conversations before where everyone's one up in each other, like, oh, you know that famous person? Well, let me tell you about the famous person I know. Right? Oh, yeah, you know him? Well, my mama's cousin, second half brother, uh, went, you know, he knew Michael Jordan, you know, or whatever. Like, like, so when we were in Canada two weeks ago, up in Toronto, we were walking kind of downtown, kind of near uh, Niagara Falls, and, and um, you know, it's like kind of a big strip, like there's all these restaurants, and uh, there's a big old casino that we did not go into, all right, and with a big old casino, all this kind of stuff going on, big old billboards that are changing stuff, and so we're walking down the road, and a pop-up on this billboard is Chris Lane. Anybody know Chris Lane in my country music? Okay, anyways, he pops up, and I go, um... Yeah, I know him. And his dad led me to the Lord. His dad was my baseball coach. I grew up with him. And it was like, I want to tell everybody because it's this cool thing, right? Yeah, I know that guy. Like my mom was just at their house with her chicken stew the other day. I know y'all don't know what chicken stew is, North Carolina thing, but. And so like you want everybody to know, hey, I know this guy because it's really cool. It makes you feel cool. It makes you feel prideful. And all of these people want to know, yeah, we know Jesus. He grew up around here. He's, he's one of us. Because it makes you feel like somebody. And we fall into this trap too. We miss out on the real Jesus because of this too. You see, we can be overly attached I'm going to step on your toes, church, all right? We can be overly attached to a church, to a person, to a particular ministry. We can be overly attached to a particular way of doing church, 
to a particular style of music, so much so that to do that thing feeds our ego, feeds our pride. It is the reason that there are churches who are still doing things that haven't worked and have been outdated for 30 years, and yet they're still doing it. They're ineffective. They don't reach anybody. No, it doesn't help anybody, but they still do it. They can't let it go because they can, in their mind and heart, they cannot separate Jesus from this thing that they love. And to lose one is to lose the other. It's the reason churches battle to change. To change we can't change this carpet. It's been here since I was three years old. Like Jesus is in the carpet. His footprints are there. That's where I got saved. We can't move those steps. I got saved on those steps. What do you mean we're not going to have pews? You can't have church without pews. And we're so attached to things that to lose it is to lose Jesus in our minds. And so what happens is we, so we, we want the thing that we like and love to thrive, not because we want to see God's kingdom advance. We might tell ourselves that, but deep down, it's not about his glory, his kingdom, but it's about feeding our ego and our desire to feel good and to enjoy the things that we like. When we do this, we become like these people in Jesus' hometown who miss out on what Jesus is really doing and who he really is because we are not here for Jesus. We're here for the show. They were there for the show. Jesus, do another trick. Come on, Jesus. Show us another one. They missed him. You see, there's a way to believe and be excited about Jesus that isn't authentic. The second thing that they do that we got to watch out for is there can be this over-familiarity with him. See, they thought, hey, man, Jesus is one of us. He's a Nazarene. He's a Galilean. We knew his mom and dad and his brothers. He's just this ordinary kid. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a big deal now, but we know who he is. That mindset can be true in us. We can be so familiar with the Bible. We can be so familiar with Jesus and with church and with Christianity. We can be such a routine and familiar with these things that he doesn't shock us anymore. That Jesus couldn't do anything that would really boggle or blow our minds. That we, we, we settle and we don't understand his, his power there's majesty anymore. There is no more awe. There's no more passion. There's no more wonder and mystery. And oh my gosh, I've, ne- I've read this book so many times and I never, I never saw this. This is so cool. And God is so good. He's so patient. He's so kind. And his mercies are new. And, and we, we, we miss this awe and this wonder and excitement because we get complacent. Because yeah, we, yeah we, we, we know. I've been in church 40 years. We know. Yeah, we know. You can't teach me anything new. I get it. I know Jesus. I know how this all works. And that familiarity breeds contempt. And you miss what God is doing right in front of you and what he's trying to teach you. I don't care if you're 97 years old. There's no one 97 in here, I don't think. You have something to learn. I don't care if you followed Jesus for 80 years. He's got something for you. The well is deep. But sometimes we have this attitude or this sense that we've mastered this thing, that we've figured it out. 
when we do, we lose the awe and the wonder of who he is, like the people in his hometown. See, these people in his hometown were consumers, not worshipers, and they missed Jesus. They were blinded to the majesty and splendor of who stood before them and of what he came to do. Because our prayer should be, Lord, may you help us to see you with fresh eyes every day. Restore to us, as David prayed, the joy of our salvation and let us long to know who you are truly. Let us know who you are deeply and more intimately. So enter this official. All that is the, is the backdrop that John is leading us to as we investigate this official and is his faith real? So this official, he, this royal official, he's a big deal. He, his son is on death's door and he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I need you to, uh, to come to my house and, and heal my son because he's about to die. And you know, this man has probably exhausted every other possibility. He's called the doctors and he's called the best doctors and he's gotten the best medicines and he's, he's probably prayed and he's done all the things that he can and he's out of options and he hears the whispers about this Jesus guy that he's back in town and so he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you gotta come. You gotta come to my house and you gotta heal my son. Now notice what Jesus does in response. It's fascinating and it sets up, it, it explains everything that I've just said. This man, will you heal my son? And here's what Jesus says. Unless you, and notice the word you is plural. You can't notice it in English, but in Greek it is. It's plural. It means multiple people. Unless you, so he's talking to everyone. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's talking to the whole crowd. It's Jesus' strongest indictment yet. He says, you guys, you don't really want me. You don't want to honor me as Savior. Uh, you, you don't want the Son of God. You don't want the Messiah. You don't want to worship me as the creator. You just want a bag of tricks. You want to see something exciting and unexplainable. So unless you see a miracle, you won't believe. And even if you do, it will be the kind of belief, it won't be the kind of belief that connects us together. It won't be the kind of faith that transforms you it won't be the kind of faith that the Samaritans are having right now. But what about this official? What about this royal official? He, is he going to be like the Samaritans and believe the word, or was he going to be like Jesus' home crowd and want to see signs? Is he just wanting to see another miracle? It seems like he's all the others. He has this health need. He wants it fixed. He's not coming with his sin looking for forgiveness. He has this felt need. Maybe he's like all unbelievers who they don't love God, they simply use God. But here's how the official responds to Jesus' rebuke. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. He basically ignores what Jesus said. He's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Seems like you got something going on. That ain't between me and you. My kid's about to die and I need you. There's desperation. Come heal my son. And man, just notice the power and the sovereignty and the might of God when he says this. Go, your son will live. He says, I don't need to go down there and touch him. I don't need to go and, and, and do some chant over him. I don't need to go even be near him. I don't need to see him. I already did it. Go, he will live. And notice how the official responds. He doesn't argue with Jesus. He doesn't say, no, Jesus, listen, I get that, but I need you to come. I need you to touch him. I need you to heal him because I need to see it. 
He doesn't, he doesn't do that. Verse 50, the man, the official, believed, catch this, the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And he said, okay, sounds good to me. And he left, and he believed the word. He doesn't need to see the miracle. He doesn't need to make sure it happened. He doesn't need to confirm it. He doesn't need to call his wife and say, hey, is he doing okay? He believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he obeyed. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And he said, okay, he believed, and he obeyed, and he went home. He obeys the commands of God. He believed the word like the Samaritans did. You see, this man was not there just to see some miracle. He's like, Jesus, I don't need to see it. I don't need you to make a big deal about it. I just need my boy to live. And he knew, or at least he hoped, that the rumors were true, that this Jesus was the son of God. And if he was, he could save his son by simply speaking. See, it would have been easy for this official to get home, see his son healed, be excited, hug his boy, celebrate, say, yeah, this Jesus guy did it, but then forget about it and go on with life. Right? It would be easy to do that. But we see this official had authentic faith because he believed the word. He left in obedience. He didn't ask for proof. But when he gets home, what does he do? He tells all of his family. Now, this is a rich, wealthy, powerful dude. He's got all these kind of servants. He tells his household, which would include all of his family members and all of his servants. And it says, the text says, and his whole household believed. You see, this faith in Jesus, not in just what he could do, but in who he was, changed him and his entire family forever. You see, authentic faith is not merely emotional. It is not merely excitement. It is trusting Jesus' words and obeying them. It is seeing Jesus for who he is, not what he can do for you. See, this official was a powerful man. This, he was wealthy. He had status. He had reputation. He probably uh, had, he had all these people under his command. He was royal. But yet he comes and he begs Jesus for help. He humiliates himself. He probably ruins his reputation. He risks it all on the hope that Jesus was who he said he was. And at the end, he finds that his reputation and his wealth and his status and his power mean nothing. That none of these things can help him. None of these things mean anything. But meeting Jesus changed him and his family's life forever. You see, a counterfeit faith can lead you to be excited about Jesus. A counterfeit faith can lead you to play in the praise band. A counterfeit faith can make you excited to come and coach a basketball team at our basketball program. A counterfeit faith can have you show up and help stack the chairs at the end of the service, can serve in the tech booth, can serve in the nursery. You can have a counterfeit faith and be like, man, I love what they're doing there at Fellowship. I want to be a part of it. You can be excited and emotional and love those things and yet miss Jesus. You can do all that and not know the real Jesus. You see, authentic faith humbles you, changes you, 
like the Samaritans and the official, it caused you to share that faith. Authentic faith believes and trusts in the word of God, not in circumstances, not in feelings, but is marked by real belief in the real Jesus, seeing, him, seeing yourself for who you are and him who for he is. It's marked by obedience, life transformation, and it's contagious. See, authentic faith doesn't see what Jesus can do for you. It simply sees Jesus for who he is. Us as sinners and him as the savior of the world. Authentic faith wants more of Jesus. Not more of Jesus the way I like him. Not more of Jesus in the music I like or in the kinds of seats I like or with the lighting I like or with the volume the way I like it or with the stage the way I like it or, or any of those things. Authentic faith just wants Jesus however you can get him. See, in many ways, we're like this royal official. See, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich as Americans. Like, we have everything we need. None of you go hungry in this room. And you pretty much almost have everything you want. And the reason many people miss Jesus or don't think they need him is because they're comfortable and they have everything they need. Why do I need Jesus? I got everything I want right here. But I want you to see, you bring nothing into this world and you take nothing out of it. Your greatest need is not for more things. It's not for Jesus to work miracles in your life, give you more stuff, but it's to see him for who he is. The creator of the world who came to rescue you, redeem you, transform you, adopt you, and love you like you've never been loved. See, some of you miss Jesus because you don't see a need for him. Some of you might miss Jesus because you're so used to him, you're inoculated to him. You see Jesus type stuff all the time that you actually miss the real, sovereign, gracious, majestic, kind, patient king in front of you. So let me ask you this question, I'm gonna be done. Is Jesus for you bound up in a particular way of doing church? certain music, certain ministry. And if you had to spend the rest of your life worshiping and serving Jesus without that particular thing or doing it that way, would you still find Jesus amazing and would you continually love and serve him or would you continually be discontent that everyone else was doing it wrong and missing the point? Is your faith authentic or is it counterfeit? Be honest with yourself, church. Because no one wants to live their whole life thinking they have this real thing only to find out in the end that the thing you had all along was a cheap imitation the whole time and it was worth nothing. Don't be like that. See the real Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are kind and gracious and patient and loving God. We're thankful that you sent your son to give his life to redeem us and save us and secure us and adopt us. God, there are many of us in this room who might have doubts and struggles and my purpose this morning isn't to further their doubts but to make them come to one of two conclusions. Either one, I, I'm a sinner, I'm a, I struggle, I have a hard time but 
but I know, I know that that's to me. I know I'm a sinner, and I know God is gracious and kind, and because of that, I see the real Jesus, and my faith is authentic, and I can rest into that. It's, my faith doesn't have to be perfect. My faith doesn't have to be stellar. It doesn't got to be so great. It just got to be in the real Jesus, the Jesus who's king and sovereign gracious and gave his life and was raised from the dead. God, there may be some of us in this room who, for whatever reason, have missed the real Jesus. We've, we've been around religion our whole life and, you know, we think it makes us a better person. We think it's good for our kids to be in church. We think it's what you do. We think, you know, it's what you do. You know, you go to church and you believe in God. I mean, we're Americans. We believe in God. I mean, come on. Of course I believe in God you've never actually bowed your knees and said, you know what? This Jesus isn't just some dude. He's the king of the world. And it's my job to bow my knees to him and surrender and say, command me, O king, I'm yours to wield as you see fit. If that's you this morning and you're here and you would say, man, I've done religious stuff. I've been around Jesus, but, and I've never really actually believed and trusted the real him and followed him. Would you let us come this morning? Would you come this morning? Let us help you walk through that and navigate that. That can be a scary thing to, to own up to in your own mind, but man, you're not alone. There's many people in this room have walked that same path. I've walked that same path. Jesus, would you show yourself to be real to us? Would you reveal yourself to us? Give us strength to respond how we need. Whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. If you want to pray, we'd love to pray with you. Whatever you got going on, we want to be here for you. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, all these people said. We'll stand and sing.